This is a Federal News Network podcast. The encrypted ledger technology known as blockchain is slowly making its way into federal agency applications. But in the opinion of my next guest, too slowly. He's introduced bills to establish a blockchain center of excellence within the Commerce Department. Now the bill has passed the House with what it would do and why it matters. Florida Democrat Darren Soto. Representative Soto, good to have you on. Well, thanks, Tom, for having me on. We uh, are in an exciting time in technology in the world with uh, the implementation of blockchain technology, which for all your listeners, it's essentially a fixed ledger. And what do I mean by that? I mean that once you add information, have a transaction on it, it's fixed forever. So when we're talking about the Internet and the uncertainty of things being erased or amended, you can't do that. And so it makes an Internet communications, transactions and so many other technologies. It gives a greater integrity and that ends up having a pretty significant effect on many different types of applications. And is your concern here with the federal bureaucracy itself engaging in this technology for its own purposes, and there are many, many use cases in the federal government, or are you concerned about federal government expertise with its use in the private sector where things can happen with the cover of anonymity, such as cryptocurrency and ransomware and so forth, or all of the above? Sure. We have several concerns. First, you see China and other rival nations investing heavily in this space. Imagine having research from multiple different data points added in through a blockchain on something like climate change or healthcare, and then using artificial intelligence to develop some of the solutions to the most complex problems. So we want to be ahead of our rivals on that. Imagine also cryptocurrency, many different currencies being used on the international stage. We want liberal democracies, those who share our values, to dominate in this 21st century technology. When it comes to the federal government itself, there's a couple things going on. One, anytime you're trying to regulate a new space, it takes Congress a while to get acclimated to that. It takes the administration and those in various agencies to brush up on that, to get more familiar on, especially cutting edge technology like blockchain and applications like cryptocurrency that many of us know about. So normally someone like me, I put forward bills to just establish the definitions and the jurisdiction of various agencies. Um, But that was too quick for the Congress or whether it was the Trump administration or even now the Biden administration to do that right away. So what do we do? We do study bills and ask the agencies to comment on it and get my peers more confident. Because right now, you know, cryptocurrency can be one of four different types of assets that uh, boggles the mind when we're using 1930s, 1940s financial definitions. It could be a currency, it could be a security, it could be a commodity, or it could be a future. Uh, So we create a new asset called digital asset eventually. But for right now, the Digital Taxonomy Act asks for the Commerce Department to develop a report along with the uh, FTC on uh, the state of blockchain technology and commerce and the ability to reduce fraud and increase security. You had mentioned that cryptocurrency has been utilized in ransomware because it's a a little more anonymous. Now, first, you can't change that transaction afterwards. So there is a permanent record of that. But second, it's not so anonymous. That's how we got 2 million of the nearly 3 plus million back from the colonial pipeline extortionists, those cyber terrorists out of Russia. So it's not as anonymous as people think. And because it's fixed, you can't escape it. And then the other bill, the Blockchain Innovation Act, asked the FTC to submit a report 
an unfair and deceptive practice related to digital tokens to to cryptocurrency. So we're getting the ball rolling, and eventually the goal is to have a blockchain center of excellence in the Department of Commerce and establish these definitions and jurisdiction. We're speaking with Congressman Darren Soto, who represents Florida's 9th District. And by the way, do you have Senate counterpart on this? Yes, we have Senator Kirsten Sinema and a few others working on several of these bills. They're not exactly the same, but in the Congress, technically, you don't need a Senate sponsor. They could just pass the bill outright. Uh, But normally, these things are uh, put into larger packages with several bills related to this area, in this case, blockchain. So it's likely that it would be included in a larger package and either sent back to the House or passed independently along with other bills uh, uh, as standalone bills. So uh, we feel pretty good about it. This was a bipartisan bill passed unanimously out of the committee and out of the House. Uh, We know when it comes to the future of blockchain technology, which can be used in research and uh, looking at AI, like we talked about, it can be used in communications, particularly secure communications, as well as protecting information against cyber attacks And then, yes, the most famous application, cryptocurrency as well. So we know we want to double down on our research and ability to utilize this technology to be able to ensure that it's liberal democracies, those who believe in equality and democracy, that prevail in the 21st century economy. And you mentioned that in promulgating the bill, you did ask for feedback from the federal agencies that would be affected themselves. What are they generally telling you? with respect to blockchain and what they'd like to do with and about it? So they're not telling us much in the Congress yet. There's been statements generally to the public, particularly from the SEC, and that's one of the concerns. Are they trying to bring in too much into the security realm, which is heavily regulated? If it is a true security, then that should be a part of the SEC's jurisdiction. But if there's overreach, one of the effects has been as new firms are emerging in cryptocurrency, they're spending almost half their money on legal because they're trying to navigate an uncertain legal landscape. We've heard a lot from the CFTC when I was on the Ag Committee on uh, the use of it as a future or commodity, uh, and now on the Energy and Commerce Committee where we have commerce under our jurisdiction, and, and a lot of this goes through the FTC. We're starting to hear more back from them on this, but that's why we have these more formal inquiries through study bills, because then as a matter of law, they have to get back to us and express their opinions. And then we utilize that to develop this final bill to establish these definitions and this jurisdiction to create greater certainty. And any other technological issues facing the government that kind of pique your interest besides blockchain? Well, imagine some of these complex decisions that we face in the government. For instance, when we had to develop a therapeutic for COVID-19 early on and to develop a vaccine. People may not know it was a supercomputer that helped us narrow down to about 12 to 14 therapeutics. One was remdesivir, and it ended up being the first therapeutic approved. If we just utilized the human brain and, and human brain power to develop that, pouring over thousands of different therapeutics, one wonders of whether we would have been able to do that as quick. And that was actually a supercomputer in the Department of Energy, which uh, one wouldn't think that would be a major factor in developing the first therapeutic for COVID. Because of the speed of what we needed, they were able to narrow it down to provide scientists with a dozen or so therapeutics. Uh, and then beyond cryptocurrency, research is so important. You know, when we talk about the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine, it was decades of developing this RNA 
essentially immune system upgrade. And then knowing that we could utilize that eventually after many years of people thinking it was a crazy idea, developing it and realizing that this is the way to upgrade our immune system in this case for COVID. And it's because of decades of research that once we had that technology, it took Pfizer and Moderna just a few months, uh, really a few weeks to develop the vaccine. But then, of course, the trials take many, many months to make sure they're safe for everyone. So you see about how critical it is as we're looking to the American Jobs Plan and the investments we're making in research that a lot of these issues that have really saved our nation and created the gold standard for vaccines started with decades of research. So whether it's cryptocurrency or vaccines or even immunology, which is revolutionizing cancer treatments and making a lot of cancer survivable, another upgrade to our immune system, uh, our continued support of research and technology in the federal government is absolutely critical for our quality of life and dominance in the world stage. Democratic Congressman Darren Soto represents Florida's 9th District. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision, and I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned 
and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.